0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Our Master Cheesemaker Program is one of the only two in the world, so it's no wonder every master in America has called Wisconsin home. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com.
2: Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Caston, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Michelle Nishad embodies all that is best about the hospitality business intelligence, perseverance, love of food, and respect for his colleagues and the diners. How a wet-behind-the-ears Midwestern boy, working summers on his grandparents' farm, a boy in love with food and music, found his way into food. A serious chef at a major restaurant at 19, he never really stopped growing. Acclaimed New York restaurants, founding Newman's Own with his friend Paul Newman, launching Wholesome Wave because he believed that people on food stamps have a right to fresh food. Our conversation with Michelle covers all that and more. Let's talk about food. And I was thinking that every bio that I read about you says Michelle Deshaun, who's a chef, who's the grandson of farmers, and this and that. And I realized that's just not enough for me. (laughs) I want to know when was the moment and what were you making or what were you eating where you said, I could actually. Do this and actually excel at it.
3: Yeah. Those thoughts came to me long after I was an accomplished cook. My mom and all of her brothers and sisters; she was one of 13. They were all exceptional cooks. Just repeat that.
2: She was one of?
3: Of 13. Wow. So my, my My mother being one of 13 and every one of my uncles and my other aunt were all expert cooks. They were butchers, they could clean fish, they could pickle, can, ferment, fry. They just, they knew what to do with food because they came from a farm family and, and farming was all about food. And the first reason that you farmed was to make sure that you could keep your land and provide for your family. And the second reason you farmed was to sell stuff so that you had some economic independence. That was the original concept of farming before all the policy changes kind of made it impossible for small family farms to be a classic American small business anymore. So I was raised with those folks. (laughs) I spent my summers working my grandfather's farm and I learned all those skills. And at that time to me, it was no big deal because I was in the business of being a kid and I was doing what I was told. And I was engaging in activities that all my cousins and my aunts and my uncles were engaging in. It's like, this is what everybody was doing as a family unit over the summer when we were helping my grandpa out on his farm. And it was just normal. I guess you could say in a way I took it for granted because I just, I didn't think anything of it. I actually was trying to be a musician, Louisa. I, I was in a band called Scoundrel in Chicago. I was below drinking age. All of my band members were above drinking age, but I was playing in some of the better nightclubs and bars and stuff like that because we were good and we were in demand, but not a financially smart decision for a business model, (laughs) being a musician. Yeah, I was living in a two-bedroom apartment with three other guys, barely able to pay rent. I could afford like a box of pancake batter. And like a six pack of beer, I'd put it in the fridge at the beginning of the night. We would go out, play. I would come back at two o'clock in the morning and the pancake batter and the beer would be gone because my roommates ate and drank it. I was hurting. And my mom, it was my mom who said, you know, let's, let's get you a job in a restaurant. You know how to cook. You're a good cook. All my aunts and uncles always said, you know, you're the best, you know, you're the best cook. And I thought they were just making me feel good as a kid, but She did cut out ads in the Antioch advertiser for me, and we found a job at Center's Truck Stop. I got a job as a breakfast cook there. So it was really more of a survival thing. It took me about a year and a half or two before I actually realized how powerful the knowledge and the skills that I had gathered growing up actually were. I had no idea. It wasn't until I was like into it and hearing other people tell me about what they felt about my abilities before I started saying, wait a minute, there's there's something here more than, yeah, my uncle taught me how to do that. You know, and my aunt taught me how to do that.
2: And so after two years working at the truck stop, where'd you go next?
3: Well, I didn't do a full year, two years at the truck stop. It, it actually moved pretty quickly. And again, this is the thing that actually fed me the type of information that all of a sudden let me know that I was onto something. I worked at the truck stop. The guy who owned the truck stop had a nephew working there because it was a tough place to work. So his nephew would come up from the city. He was working in some pretty fancy restaurants in Chicago and would come up to help out because <laughs> you know, his uncle, my boss had a tough time keeping help because he was difficult to work with. So I'm working with this kid who's a couple of years older than me. And and he's watching me work in the kitchen. He's like, you have skills, man. And at the time I was still in the band. So I was doing both. I was cooking and still playing in the band because I really loved the band and loved music. He's like, you know, you should come down. He worked for this guy named Gene Sage, who was kind of like a Drew Nieporn of Chicago. And he's like, Gene Sage is opening this new restaurant in Arlington Heights. You can come down room with me. I'll get you a job. We need someone with skills like yours. And it's $2 more an hour. I'm like, I'm in it and it's closer to Chicago where my band was playing, right? Uh, so I started working at Sage's and within a few months, at first, because I didn't know all the culinary terminology, some of the sous chefs thought I was stupid, right? So they'd have me peeling onions. And then there was one day that they needed veal. They had a leg of veal sitting on a counter and they were in the weeds because some people had quit and we had this big fundraiser. And they're cutting the veal and pounding it, cooking it as they need it. And I'm like, I can do that. (laughs) And finally, out of frustration, one of the sous chefs said, here it is. You better not F it up. And he hands me a filet knife and I break down the leg of veal like super fast. And they're looking at me and they're like, oh my God, this guy can butcher. They're like, give me the eye of the round. And I'm like, What's that? (laughs) They're like, oh, it's like this big. It kind of looks like a male penis, you know. And I'm like, oh, I know what that is. Boom, here, here you are. And they're like, he just doesn't know what to call stuff. So they thought I was stupid (laughs) because I didn't understand the terminology. And then they saw that I could break down a leg of veal faster than the chef. And within a few weeks, the chef had me on the line. He had me work in different stations. And he comes to me one day. He's like, you know, Michelle. What you went through, all these guys giving you shit. Why didn't you ever speak up for yourselves? I'm like, listen, my grandfather always said, eyes open, ears open, mouth closed, hands on. That's how you earn respect. He said, I want you to be my sous chef. And I said, What's that? He said, It's $5 more an hour. (laughs) So I'm kind of like, you know, it's so funny. I didn't even know what sous chef meant, but it really was then that I was becoming super energized because once the chef opened up to me and saw the value. And I didn't even see the value of the knowledge I had other than I know how to do that. Let me help you guys. And if you don't want my help, I'm fine with that too, because I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I really, really then started to feel the power of it because he started, his name was John Waits, W-I-T-T-S. He was Alsatian. And he started teaching me how to make stocks, how to do reductions, because I always looked at stocks as just a broth. And then I started understanding wow, roasting bones before you make a broth with them. Wow. That's like genius. You know, and then the whole reduction thing and all of that jazz, if you can mount with butter, why can't you mount with bacon fat, goose fat, and other things? So I, I really started having fun with it. it, but I also started to not miss the music. Uh, business anymore because I, that once the chef opened up to me, I started finding so many creative similarities in the process of making and creating good food and good dishes and similarity in the process of how you partner with people on a working hotline. You have your grill guy, your saute guy, the entremetier woman, everybody kind of works in tandem to come up with this finished, beautiful dish, which is like a song. So it's kind of like being in a band. It was at that moment that the chef said, be my sous chef, that I actually said, I could do this for the rest of my life.
2: And you were how old?
3: 19. <laughs> I, I was. And then I got a gig with Hyatt when I was 20. So from 20 to 21, I ended up working at a couple of Hyatts and then getting promoted to the executive sous chef of the Hyatt Regency Milwaukee. And then I was poached by A young restaurateur to open a restaurant called the fleur-de-lis spelled differently than than hubert Hubert keller's fleur-de-lis his is l-y-s ours was l-i-s didn't even know the fleur-de-lis in san francisco existed at age 21 i was executive chef of a french restaurant wild right
2: And they thought you were stupid.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, you know, the bummer kind of is that, you know, my grandpa was gone because he, he's the one that's like, you know, he, he was the believer and you can do anything. He's one of these guys who was like convinced that every one of his kids or grandkids could be president of the United States type thing. You know, he was fond of me. I was fond of him. My aunts, my uncles, my mom was like over the moon with what I was able to do. To really be able to go from like gray collar musician to being the young executive chef of like the number one restaurant, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and in, in the early eighties was really something. So, uh, it didn't take long. It was really maybe like a three and a half year journey overall from breakfast cook at a truck stop to chef at a French restaurant. <laughs> And I'm kind of like, guys, are you sure you want me, Matt? I just barely graduated high school with, with like, straight D's and a couple of C's. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Wow.
2: And we will be back with Michelle and find out how this solid son of the Midwest found his way to becoming a central figure in the difficult-to-crack East Coast culinary scene.
1: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. In Wisconsin, cheese is our thing. Wisconsin is the only state in the country that requires a license to make cheese. From curds to cheddar, blue to brick, Wisconsin cheesemakers can do it all. We blend tradition with innovation to create an incredible variety of cheeses that you just can't get anywhere else. You've heard of a PhD, but have you heard of a PH cheese? otherwise known as the Wisconsin Master Cheesemaker Program. This rigorous study of cheese is an elite accomplishment earned by only 80 talented cheesemakers in Wisconsin, and the program is only one of two in the world. Becoming a master cheesemaker takes 13 years and is basically like a doctorate in a specific variety of cheese with intense requirements to succeed. Our Master Cheesemaker Program allows makers to perfect both the art and science of their craft in a tradition so rich you can taste it. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. And we
2: are back with Michelle. And how did you, how did you wend your way east to New York, to Connecticut, to mm. Paul knew for the wholesome
3: wave to everything. <laughs> yeah. It really was. Well, I ascribe everything to karma, I always tried to be as positive and as helpful um and as unintrusive as I could be, which I think a lot of people appreciated because in a culinary environment, especially in America, there's so much testosterone. It was so male dominated and triple A egomaniac dominated for such a long time. I think I took a lot of chefs by surprise by being even tempered and more quiet and more direct and really focused on my colleagues to try to help improve their skills so that they could be more comfortable in their environment and stuff like that it really was i was just trying to be a good neighbor <laughs> you know it's like if you're the grill person the saute person is your neighbor you know and the garbage is your neighbor on the other side you just want to create that sense of camaraderie right so that helped me and the chef at Hyatt, who had brought me to Milwaukee, made me an executive sous chef, was very proud when I went out and opened the Florida Lee, had been hired by interstate hotels to run their franchise Marriott's. And they had a concept of having Marriott's with Hyatt food, because at the time Hyatt was doing really amazing culinary work. They were like the first hotel group in, in North America and the United States who really prized food and food quality and flavor. And there was a period of time where some of the best restaurants in the country were in a Hyatt hotel. So they poached him out of Hyatt and he poached me because he said, listen, you, you know how to build teams. You know how to lead people. You understand quality. We're trying to do this mashup between Marriott and Hyatt. I want you to come and work with me. And he knew that I needed a business education because I didn't have that. I was a partner in the fleur de Lee and I had no idea. I never got anything out of it because whether we made $90,000 a month or $130,000 a month, we either had $100 in profit or loss. And when I would ask the financial owner and say, how can that be? He'd just say, well, here's the operating statement. I'd look at the operating statement. And it was like reading hieroglyphics. So Steve Hall, who is the chef, thought I was probably being taken advantage of and was trying to coach me out of it. I sent him a couple of operating statements and he said, this doesn't look right to me, but there's probably not much you can do about it. He said, why don't you come and work with me? Help me open some hotels because we're franchising Marriott's Marriott corporation created in partnership with Cornell university, a management development module, because Bill Marriott had this vision that someone should be able to start as a housekeeper, a bus person, uh, a cook and work their way all the way up to general manager internally. So it's kind of this resource mapping thing. It takes four years to get through. He said, you come work with me, help me open a few hotels. I'll see you get the business education that you need so that in the future you don't get taken advantage of. I was in Milwaukee when he called me and he was based in Albany, New York, cause they had just opened a hotel there. And uh, they were getting ready to open a hotel in Trumbull, Connecticut, the Trumbull Marriott. So he asked me to come out and be the executive chef of that Trumbull Marriott to open it, uh, which I did. So that's how I made it east. He also said, you come out to Connecticut, you'll be closer to New York. Michelle, I really believe you belong in New York. That's where everything food is happening in the United States right now. And that's how I made the journey. So and that's what? how I got my business education. <laughs>
2: Which is the lacuna that most chefs don't have. They can't read an income statement to save their lives.
3: Right. They can't. It, it it's kind <laughs> of won't
2: a save their lives, unfortunately.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and also just that whole notion of cooking good food, serving good food, knowing how to lead a team and motivate people, knowing how to be fair and equitable, If you say all of those things and, and you can identify somebody who has all of those capabilities, still not enough. It's not enough. If you can't pull all of those things off in a manner that allows your operation to be financially viable, all of those other things is spiritually important as they are and culturally important as they are, are all for naught because if you can't keep your business profitable. You can't buy food. You can't serve customers. You can't pay your staff. It's just all of those skills become wasted. If you don't step out of your shell and your comfort level and get yourself the education, you need to be able to run a decent business or to be able to find the right partner that you can trust who can handle that part of it and help you run that end of the business. But, you know, it's difficult for young culinarians who often have that Kind of that ego, that drive, that type A thing. Nobody wants to admit that they don't want to know something. And pretty young out in my life, I learned that it's really good to know what you don't know. <laughs> and if you can't learn it, enlist somebody who does know it because you can't pretend you don't need
2: it. For a very long time, I was married to the only banker in the Northeast who lent to chefs. And mm-hmm. one of the things I learned is that for every chef who wants to be a chef owner, there's maybe, for every hundred of them, there's maybe three you can actually succeed. Yeah. Because yeah. they will look at the numbers and they will think about the numbers and they will think about their food cost in a way that doesn't hurt their soul. It makes me sad because I also yeah. see that fallout happening now in the post-COVID yeah. world. Yeah. There will be people who succeed and a whole lot of people with talent won't.
3: Yeah. yeah. It's a tough time right now. It's an important time, actually, I think. Because as I move through my own advocacy path, it started really trying to address the fact that what I didn't know as a kid when I was spending all that time on my grandfather's farm was we were doing that every summer because he couldn't afford farm workers because farming was no longer financially viable for small-scale farmers in America because of policy changes. I didn't know that. I was just, this is what we did. We had fun. It was really hard work. Sometimes we really hated it. Often we really loved it. I learned how to cook. It was awesome. We ate good food. We did a lot of fishing and stuff like that. But I really didn't realize until I started buying food in restaurants and couldn't find the type of tomatoes my grandfather grew why I couldn't find just basic, decent quality ingredients in the existing supply chain was because of this. So, you know, the first part of my career was trying to figure out how to unwind Uh that and fix that, you know, going out into the countryside and finding farmers and paying them in advance to grow tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers and stuff like that, having to go and pick it and pick it up myself because they were corn and soy growers and they were harvesting corn and soy. They couldn't harvest and deliver my stuff. So I had to go and get it. You know, you work through a business like this, where you're serving thousands of people a month or a year. And you end up knowing too much. (laughs) You'll learn about all the pieces of the supply chain and you can't make a decision that's going to harm somebody or something, right? And when you start to talk about the environmental considerations and you just think of restaurants in the context of how prolific they had become, how many restaurants there were and still are, how many people actually rely on restaurants for all of their meals, whether they're really low quality, super cheap restaurant formats, fast food, cracker barrel, et cetera, et cetera, whatever that might be, all the way up to the finest restaurants in the country, too many people are eating at restaurants, I think. It's like, well, how does a restaurant operate? You walk in at nine o'clock in the morning, you turn all the equipment on, you turn all the lights on, all the refrigeration has been running overnight, still is running. And whether you do 50 dinners or 250 dinners, really doesn't matter. You've got the same amount of equipment on, burning all of that energy. And then you also have a consumer base that's become so reliant on being able to just go out and eat, get their food elsewhere other than their own home. That's where food illiteracy really comes from, is being so disconnected from your food, you're not really shopping for it. You're really not understanding the difference between a really good and a very mediocre tomato and why that difference exists. Your curiosity has been drained from you by the ability to go someplace and look at a bunch of choices on a menu and say, I want this. I just don't think that's sustainable. I think our food system is largely economically illiterate and environmentally illiterate because people have been completely disconnected from the curiosity of. That if you have to prepare your own food, you have to go find it. You have to go buy it. You know, you're feeding it to someone else. If it sucks, that's not going to reflect well on you. If it's amazing, it's going to reflect well on you. When you don't have those things going on in your head and your soul, it's not good for the planet. (laughs) So I, I think it's an important moment because I do feel that one of the things about COVID that I think was very positive was how many people actually started embracing cooking at home. There are people who had never cooked at home and thought they couldn't cook, started cooking and actually said they liked it and they intend to continue doing it. People started with sourdough bread, the hardest thing. (laughs) It's like, I find a lot of hope in that. And I think it actually will be good if we come out of this thing with people less reliant so that the restaurants that are there at all of these different tiers of operation are the best of those. They might have learned something. And if we don't have an oversaturated restaurant business environment, that maybe the amount of business for the amount of restaurants in that ratio comes to a place where restaurants can actually start paying people living wages. It's been a big issue in our industry, I have to confess.
2: I find that very fascinating because I think that the um this has been a moment of incredible clarity. For people, they realize that they have been abused by the system that that works for the diner. Maybe it works for the owner. Mm -hmm. It reminds me, you know, all the people in my family who were physicians, of which there are many. I'm Jewish. There are many. And they went through the system, which was incredibly abusive of young doctors. Oh, yeah. And they all were told, well, we did it. So that's how it is. And Mm -hmm. then it started to change.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, know, yeah. and, And to me, we need to get to that place where everybody's role in a system is valued and understood. I think one of the reasons why we see such unabated mental health issues these days is because of that lack of acknowledgement of value. So it's not just making sure people get paid enough, that's critically important, but that they're valued. They have a real value that there isn't a good chef that I know of who wouldn't say when someone says, what's the most important position in your kitchen and the first thing out of their mouth is dishwasher. (laughs) It's kind of like the grill cook can have a mental breakdown and the saute and the entremetier can fill in and the food will still go out, but that dishwasher shuts down, (laughs) you got nothing to cook with. You have nothing to put the food on. Every piece of these systems are important and. The best operations are operations where internally each of the employees from the different sectors that are working in this single environment actually understand the value of each other. That A busser understands the importance of a dishwasher, which is why they scrape the plates clean and stack them nicely and soak the silverware before it gets to the dishwasher instead of just dumping them on the dish deck and leaving the dish person to deal with it the best run operations is where the bartender understands the job of the food runner, the waiter, that they, they all respect and understand the value that they each bring to it. Then it's not just, well, I don't care about freaking servers and bussers. I'm a bartender, all I care about is getting my customers at my bar as many drinks as possible so I get the best tip. When someone has that attitude in a restaurant environment, it's because there is a failure of leadership and there's a lack of values and core values that allows this group of employees to actually operate more like a family who respect each other. We have a ways to go. I think we've been making a lot of progress pre-COVID. Today's young up-and-coming chefs are much more conscious than the young chefs that I was working alongside or competing with, you know, back in the early 80s and into the 90s. You know, that chest-pounding, pumping win at when-at-all-costs thing really isn't the prevalent kind of leadership style anymore, thank God. But I think, I think we still have a long way to go.
2: I wanted to ask you, I've known you through the Chef's Collaborative and the Chef's Mm. Action Network and all those sort of things, which are really positions where you as a mentor and as a sort of a symbol of moral courage, what do you think is the net effect of this media glorification of chefs and cooking?
3: You know, I think it's odd. It's like any fame, it's a double-edged sword. One, it's about time. Shep Gordon, who's a dear friend of mine, who is a music agent, represented very famous musicians to protect them and really make sure that their rights were taken care of and that that they weren't being devalued or taken advantage of and was a lover of food and just assumed that chefs like Wolfgang Puck and Roger Verge were treated the same and they weren't how underpaid, how undervalued chefs were. He actually was the first guy who said chefs deserve agents, <laughs> you know, because there is a special performance talent. Why should people not think of Tom Colicchio, Jose Andres, Marcus Samuelson as they think of Misty Copeland, as they think of Anne Hathaway or Paul Newman? Chefs are just as important as actors are. In fact, People don't live or die by the movies they watch, but they, the quality of their life has everything to do with what they put in their mouth. You know? So so I think sometimes I actually think we're more important, but but that's just, I'm just biased. All of these forms of art are very culturally critical and important to our national or global identity, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's about time, the glorification. I don't like the direction a lot of it's taken. And it's, it might just be my own personal bias, but I have always been an absolute, despiser of reality television survivor big brother all of this crap this staged bs one of my one of my problems um you know with the media glorification of chefs is that a lot of that those a lot of the content is created in the same template as these reality TV shows. I, I mean, I remember watching some of the first reality kitchen shows and I'm like, that's, that doesn't happen in a professional kitchen. If that's how it was, (laughs) we'd all be screwed one. And I always felt that it was not right to portray it as though this is what it's like in a real kitchen to millions of Americans, because then they get the wrong impression of our business. And young culinarians who are watching this stuff, thinking that they're going to be famous one day, go to culinary school for the wrong reasons. Now they're going to culinary school because they want to be famous, not because they're passionate about food and the love of service and they live to serve. And they want to create the best dish in the world because the most amazing thing that could happen to them today is to have someone look at them and smile and say, that's the best thing I ever put in my mouth that's why people should be going to culinary school. So, I think it's about time that chefs are getting the accolades they deserve. Sponsors are still taking advantage, chefs are woefully underpaid when you compare them to actors and musicians and and others and stuff like that. They're getting the media attention they deserve, but I think people need to start understanding that they should be paying more for their food at a restaurant. That you don't choose a restaurant because The awesome veal dish at this restaurant is $2 less than the awesome veal dish at this restaurant. So I'm going to go the one that's $2 less. You should probably be paying $10 more for veal than what you're paying. But restaurants keep their prices where they're at because that's how a lot of customers make their decisions. I'd rather have young culinarians going to school and learning how to use their menus and storytelling to forward that. Dialogue and educate their consumers in a way where people will actually start to accept to pay a higher premium for food that's ethically farmed, for staffs that are ethically paid and treated. Yeah, food with a story. I talked about on some food television. Can't you guys take 5% of the airtime and devote it to some thought leadership? You know. So, yeah, again, I, I apologize. It's a long answer. My mom would tell you if she were alive when you asked Michelle what time it is, they'll tell you how a clock is built. I have one last question. So what's next? Oh, wow. Well, so I did this thing. I actually got it started um, the um like a year before COVID hit. One of my mantras of life, and I need to just learn to articulate it better because as I get older, I'm 62 now, you know, people do call me. Oh, yeah. They're hungry for guidance. I think what I would distill my life to be about is that change isn't happening fast enough. It, it would happen faster if we all stopped talking about things and actually started doing things like when I would go out to the countryside and pay a farmer in advance to grow tomatoes and go and pick them myself and bring them back to my restaurant, founding Wholesome Wave and coming up with crazy concepts when they were illegal, like doubling food stamps for fruits and vegetables, and then getting it embedded in federal policy. I actually checked out of the business for a while because the lease was up at the restaurant, Paul had passed away. And Wholesome Wave was about to be successful getting the Food Insecurity Nutrition Incentive Program in the 2014 Farm Bill. So I knew we were going to get really busy. So I just decided to get out of the restaurant business. But when I look at what's going on, I really felt I needed to get back into the restaurant business for two reasons. One was when we had a strategic plan, and knew that there would be demand to scale the work of Wholesome Wave. We wouldn't be able to ever raise enough money from the philanthropic community to do that. Philanthropy just doesn't have that much money to really truly solve society's most vexing problems. And two, it's like knowing what I know about all the things that are kind of like broken or need to be redesigned in the existing supply chain, not participating in it with the skill set that I have was just a non-starter. So this strategic planning guy is like, you know, Michelle, you need to raise more money You quit the restaurant business and you can't sleep at night because you feel like you should be engaging in it. He's like, you know, there's this, you may have heard of this guy named Paul Newman. He knew that Paul and I were partners. He's like, you may have heard of this guy, Paul Newman. You know, he has a food company that sells stuff and then it gives away $500 million over like 30 years. He really got me thinking to get back into the business, but not the restaurant business to really do scaled food service. So I thought it was an interesting ideal. I started checking around speaking to some really good friends of mine and really decided that there was a big unmet demand gap in scaled institutional foods. So colleges and universities, hospitals and healthcare, major employers like Apple, Google, Netflix, feeding, you know, 60 to 80,000 meals a day. These are where the biggest decisions get made in the supply chain. I learned that in that sector, that unlike in a restaurant where soup is a real moneymaker, you take your scraps that chefs who don't know a lot about, they just kind of throw them away. I take those scraps and turn them into really delicious soup and make money on them. I'm basically making money on what somebody else would declare as garbage. But when you're feeding 80,000 people a day, it's very labor intensive. And facilities intensive to ship whole food in one direction, bring the scraps back from multiple locations to a central location to make the stock, to make the soup. Very high labor costs, very difficult facilities, usage. You have to create internal supply chains. So There was a real opportunity to do plant-based soup for this environment. So I created a company called Wholesome Crave. It's a plant-based soup company based on well-being, local, organic, sustainable, no processed foods. We just started right at the beginning of January of 2019. Google tried us out in Mountain View. By November of 2019, we were their preferred vegan soup provider. And in first quarter of 2020, we were going to go into a lot of the other Googles, a whole bunch of other large-scale facilities (laughs) Then COVID happened. So we've been kind of in the state of suspended animation, but it's all coming back now. We just got picked up by UMass Amherst. The folks at UC Santa Cruz just picked up our product. UC Davis Healthcare is buying our product. So what we do, similar to Newman's Own, what a lot of people didn't know was that it's set up so that the foundation owns the intellectual property to the name Newman's Own. The food company that makes and sells the food at retail is a C-corp. They sell the food and to use the name Newman's Own, they take 12% of gross revenues and give it to the foundation as a tax-free royalty. instead of the money falling below the EBIT line, paying taxes, and then giving the money away. Because legally, if you give your money away before you pay taxes on it, you don't have to pay tax on a charitable donation. But the IRS just didn't like that. So Newman's Own created this format where they could do the tax-free licensing kind of royalty thing. So that's what we do with Wholesome Crave. Wholesome Wave owns the intellectual property to the name Wholesome Crave. Wholesome Crave sells soup to Google and 5% of gross revenue, which is about half the profits. 5% of gross revenue comes off the top to support food and nutrition and security work and the policy advocacy work of Wholesome Wave. So that's what's next for me. How do we accelerate this change by proving that there are such things as businesses? And this is the important thing. We want to be able to have people invest in Wholesome Wave and get a return on their investment. We want to be able to attract top talent by offering equity and having that equity be worth some value. But we also chose to be in a business sector that is a very, very large marketplace so that we can drive a lot of equitable change by using proceeds to solve some of society's most vexing problems. So that's what's next for me. Because of COVID, we pivoted. So we're doing e-commerce. So we actually have, if you go on wholesomecrave.com, you can buy our soup and have it delivered to your house. (laughs) Everybody was ordering, but it's like, we're kind of like, let's start a website. So you should check it out, Louisa.
2: Thank you, Michelle.
3: Great. This is great.
2: Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer, Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer, Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com/slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community?